2: Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law.
1: Good day, and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney, and I'm also a bankruptcy certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my J.D. and certification... I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. I must be a sick puppy, and I am. In addition to my JDL, I hold a a taxation and a master of laws of intellectual property law. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. And with these areas of law as my reference point, That is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat, and you know I always will be one, and I also helped create another one with my former spouse, who was also a professional soldier, Tully retired, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines, and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system. This is especially the case after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve ver- veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I want to reiterate again that we in America are so blessed to have a military that's comp- 100% of our fellow citizens in as much as the draft went away The same year, well, it was after I graduated from high school. And you know something funny? Because Selwyn is masculine. I'm not masculine, but the name Selwyn is masculine. Do you know I got called up (laughs) to go register with the draft board? And it was so funny when I waddled in there because I was very, very much pregnant. (laughs) Everybody got a big laugh about Drafting me into the Army. But I just say that because we have an all-volunteer Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, (laughs) everything. And so we're blessed. And so that's why I take a lot of effort and energy and get very pissed off when our government talks about not paying our professional soldiers, sailors, airmen, and women, and Marines, because they need to get paid. They work for less than uh, what you or I get paid, and they need to get paid. Again, I got a lot of this energy from my late father who gave back to this country, and he told me that I had to give back too. But he also told me <laughs> that I didn't have the right temperament uh, to be a soldier uh, in as much as I always had to have an explanation as to why something was. So I shouldn't become a, a, a civilian and serve my country that way, and I did. So I had a great father, and I also had two great grannies who became my BFFs, and I learned a lot from them as well because they faced up to the four great economic challenges of the 20th century, the Great Depression, World War II, uh, systemic racism, and misogyny that continues to and through our society today. And as these wonderful women loved me, they helped raise me, and they always share with me great stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South. It is out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me in spirit, urging me on, along with my dad, that when the situation is right, through my chosen profession, my chosen way to give service now, practicing and also speaking and writing about the law, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and disabled who find themselves the targets of and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could imagine that seems to be running rampant in our very troubled society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more probably than not these days, the lack thereof and your overall finances and what you may need to consider uh, to reclaim or rehabilitate or to protect your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide Any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational form for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you. Uh, as you seek out more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances, and hopefully provide you with at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. So, Today, we're going to conclude our discussion of our 236-year-old United States Constitution by, again, reviewing Article One, Section 9, that's entitled, The Powers Denied Congress. They're denied from expending any money uh, unless they have set up an appropriations process. That is to say a budget process. And we're going to use this teachable moment as we see all of the bizarre things that are going on back in Washington, D.C. around our one particular house of our legislative branch. So uh, again, this Article 1, Section 9 is called the Appropriations Clause. And it states that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in Consequence of appropriations made by law and a regular statement and account of the receipts from taxes and expenditures for the military, say, uh, of all money, all public money, shall be published from time to time. In other words, this is saying something that's denied from Congress the ability to spend any money unless they have. Completed this appropriation, this public budgeting process, which we have not, which is why we're in a deep kimchi right now. Now I uses my source material about our government's fiscal appropriations process that I found on the website of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Now it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that's committed to educating the public, you and me, on issues with significant fiscal policy impact. Now, first a bit about the organization. In 1980, um, Robert, let me get this spelled right, Jaiimo, it's spelled G-I-A-I-M-O, a Democrat from Connecticut, and Henry Belmo, a Republican from Oklahoma left Congress. Both of them had served many years on the House Budget Committee uh, on the one hand, and Mr. Belmont had served on the Senate uh, Budget Committee since its inception back in uh, 1975. And these two fiscal policy experts wanted to make sure that the public had access to information so we could help guide our elected officials through the process of the budget, the annual budget process. Now, you can find out more about this organization and their um, address is their website address is C-R-F-B, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget.org. dot org. Again, C-R-F-B. And I'm going to share with you some of the organization's information about how it's formed. Initially, the budget contours outlines come from the executive branch. The president, because he or she, hopefully one day, um, is responsible for the agencies that implement the programs that we, uh, through our Congress persons decide should be uh allocated should we should expend funds for so the president annually creates a budget that he sends to congress and he the president has no power to um you know tell the congress you know he, he has no appropriations he has no budget unless congress gives it to him So when we come back, we're going to continue our overview of this budget process, but we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side.
2: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of today's topic, and that is basically Article 1, Section 9 of our United States Constitution entitled Powers Denied Congress. And again, we're going to take this time as we are in the midst of a lot of chaos going on in the world. But as far as the budget process, it's all happening back in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, and we want to talk about, you know, the budget process. It seems to be caught up in a, a train wreck. okay. Again, how do we develop a budget here in the United States? Because the executive branch is responsible for implementing the programs that Congress deems appropriate, it only makes sense for the president who has these agencies under him to propose to Congress what he thinks these different agencies need to fulfill their duties under our Constitution. So what is the process There was a bill passed back in 1974 called the Budget Act, and it lays out the basically the timeline. Okay, so the president is to submit his budget request the first Monday of each February um, and um, to hand it over. And Congress starts its process on April 15th of the year. Um, And they are supposed to have completed the appropriations bill by June 30th of each year. However, there is no um, mandate about this other than there is a deadline for passing of the appropriations bills is October 1st of each year when the next fiscal year begins. So we're at the beginning of October. October. On October 1st, 2023, began fiscal year 2024. And as you know, we don't have a budget. So what happens if the appropriations bills are not passed by October 1st of a given year? If they're not enacted before October 1st, federal funding will lapse, resulting in a government shutdown. Now, to avoid a shutdown, Congress has often passed continuing resolutions, which allow for the continued funding of, of the government based on what the prior fiscal year uh, expenditures. However, Congress does have some leeway into to manipulating this somewhat, but that's generally what happens. So what is a continuing resolution anyway? It's a temporary bill that continues funding for all programs based on a fixed formula, usually the prior year's funding level. Congress can pass a continuing resolution for all or just some of the appropriations bills. Continuing resolutions can increase or decrease the funding and can include anomalies which adjust spending in certain accounts to avoid technical or administrative problems caused by continuing funding at the current level or for other reasons. So what happens during a government shutdown? A government shutdown represents a lapse, an end, a gap uh, of funding, and during shutdowns, the government stops most non-essential activities related to the discretionary budget. You know, so what is this discretionary budget? Well, I want to a place where you can get a picture of what the problem is between the Republicans who want us to immediately have a balanced budget with no deficits and other people who think, well, if that's what you want, You need to pass the legislation and stop holding your breath and turning red and kicking your feet and having a temper tantrum and shutting the government down. The problem in a nutshell is this. Each year we spend, and this is based on 2022, and I got this from the Congressional Budget Office, they periodically put out reports, including very informative um, infographs so congressional budget office the problem is in 2022 we outlaid 6.3 trillion, trillion dollars running our government guess how much revenue we got we got 4.9 trillion that's the deficit that many republicans want us to cease today the problem with that is trillion of that money is mandatory. And there are bills that have been passed that cannot be overridden except by the express will of Congress. And it takes a majority. And if the Republicans want to stop this and change these bills, they need to go out and elect more people instead of holding their breath and acting crazy. Again, 4.1 trillion is mandatory. Only 1.7 is discretionary. And guess what? where the military budget comes from? That discretionary part. And if we're going to support our allies, there are two hot wars going on right now. Um, There's not going to be a whole lot of money left over uh, for uh, Congress to cease making appropriations for. And do you know a whopping... Half trillion dollars a year goes for uh, us to pay the interest on our debt. So if we have a deficit between what we have to pay out and what we have to take in, like I tell my clients when we're trying to have a budget to get their reorganization plan approved by a bankruptcy court judge, you're either going to have to increase your revenue or decrease your expenditure. It's the same with you or my budget, the federal budget, you know, a a, a business's budget. So the problem is there are some entities that aren't paying their fair share of taxes. And guess who those people are? They're big business and they have lobbyists and you and me don't have lobbyists except one time I story about me being a lobbyist and representing the interests of individuals and poor folks back in Washington. That was a very exciting period in my life. But I would come up against people who were very well funded. And that's the situation here. Big business um, and people who are very wealthy have lobbyists and they should be required to increase their part of the uh, the revenue stream through taxes and not just us. So I I, I again you can go to the Congressional Budget Office, CBO dot gov, and they have, because again part of that appropriations process, periodically the budget figures have to be made available to us so we can make sure that our government is uh operating according to the Constitution. Okay. So I I I I'm very animated about this process because I would hate to have us wait until November 17th. That's when the current uh, continuing resolution expires and we'll be jammed up against another opportunity for people to shut down our government at a time when, uh, again, I said we have two hot wars going on in the world and there's always an opportunity for someone to make a bad move in the South China Sea and invoke some issues concerning, um, Taiwan and China. And for us to not have a speaker of the house and for us to not have a budget in place makes absolutely no sense. So, um, you know, I'm going to, before I go, I want to share something. I know what's going on in the Middle East. It's a tragedy. But I would hate to see things go from bad to worse. Um, I'm going to read something that was sent to me today uh, by um, a group that got it from the International Committee for the Red Cross, and they made a public statement calling for a pause uh, in Gaza fighting. Um, They say, and I'm I'm quoting here, the horrific attack Israel suffered last week cannot, uh, in turn, justify the destruction of Gaza. The International Committee for the Red Cross uh, makes plain in its opening statement that nothing can justify Hamas's abhorrent action on October 6th, full stop. Now, turning to the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the International Committee for the Red Cross strikingly states plainly that instruction issued by Israel Israeli authorities for the population of Gaza city to immediately leave their homes coupled with the complete siege um, inexplicably denying them food, water, and electricity are not compatible with international humanitarian law. And I got to say that I stand with the International Committee for the Red Cross. You know, I'm a military person through and through. I'm not a wimp. I'm not a pacifist. I know what went on. I witnessed it along with the rest of you, what happened uh, in Israel, with um, them being uh, attacked horribly so. But I got to tell you, good soldiers not only kill the bad guys, they protect non combatants, they protect civilians. Otherwise, you're a gang. So I'm urging the Israeli Defense Force and all of its allies to not to do all that they can to protect the non-combatants on both sides. You know, lest we succumb to being badass gangs and that that would leave a stain on all of us, all of us morally for for all times to come. So, Again, good soldiers protect non-combatants. They go after the bad guys relentlessly, and I'm down with that. But good soldiers protect non-combatants and civilians. So with that, I'm going to leave it there for now, but it's always in closing here on Selwyn's Law. we want to stay on the right side of the law and that includes having access and utilizing the tools of our primary law, that is to say, our Constitution, to provide us the help we need to become and stay informed and knowledgeable participants in the proper function and functioning of the first branch of our United States government, that is to say, Congress, and holding it, Congress, accountable for timely enacting our budget that we need not only to provide services to us here in America, but also to be able to support our allies around the world when they need our help as well. So till next time, please take care. Bye for now.